Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. As you're turning there, let me remind you this series is called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. Um, We're walking through the life of Christ. Uh, We want to see Christ more fully and worship Him more rightly. That's the aim of this series. Um, We're going to take a break, though, from the series in a couple of weeks. For the summer months, for 12 weeks during the summer, we're going to look at the minor prophets. We're going to do overview sermons of each one of the minor prophets and see how each minor prophet points toward Christ. So that's going to be our summer series. And I very cheesingly have decided to call it a summer in the minors and give it a baseball theme. All right. So there you go. Every now and then my creative seeker sensitive side comes out. So summer in the minors will be what we're going to be preaching here in a few weeks. But today and next week, we will certainly continue to be in this, the life of Christ in Mark chapter 1, verse 21 today is where we're going to start. So go ahead and stand, if you would, as we read uh, this passage of Scripture, Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. We're going to read all the way through verse 28. The Word of God says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask now that you would bless the reading of your word and bless the preaching of your word. We know that your word does not return void. We believe in the power of scripture to change lives, to penetrate hard hearts. It is not in our ability to listen well. It is not in in my ability to speak well. It is the word that has the power. And so we desperately need the Holy Spirit to enable ears to hear and to enable my mouth to speak. And we ask now that you would do that. We pray that you'd be honored in this time of reading and studying and preaching your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. Kids. Who is the authority? Do you know what the word authority is? Who's the authority in your home? Hmm. No one wants to answer. Who's the authority in your home? Your dad? Okay. Okay, So what does authority mean? The person in charge. The boss, right? He's the authority in your home, in your family. Now, children, have you ever defied that authority? You know what that means? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> okay, we got one young man who knows what it means, definitely. Okay, you push back against that authority. You know, if you have rules in your home, and most families do, and the rules differ from family to family, sometimes the rules aren't fun to follow. They're necessary, and we should submit to that authority over us, but sometimes... It's not easy, and sometimes we, because of our own sin, we break those rules and we, we defy the authority that has been placed over us. 
you know, in our world today, authority is, um, well, it's, a, it's not a popular concept. If you start talking about authority, immediately I think people begin to not like that word. I mean, I think even us, if we're honest, if we hear the word authority, there's something in us, it's called the sinful rebellious nature within us, doesn't like to hear about authority. But, uh, but authority is important. But in our, in our world today, I just read this weekend of, a, of an actor, and I won't say his name, but a, but a famous Hollywood actor who, whose son, who's now like 14 or 15, has decided to emancipate himself from his family. So he's now going to be free. He's no longer under the legal authority of his parents. And the, even though the, this Hollywood actor was kind of surprised by this or anything, his response was, you know, we raised our kids not to have any rules or authority. He said, we, we don't believe in authority structures. We believe everyone's on an equal grounding in the home. And that's what this Hollywood actor believes. And so it's no surprise that his son now at 14 or 15 decides, I, I'm out of here, to emancipate himself from his family. And that's sort of the, the trend today is, is, is people are taught from very little to distrust or to question or even to reject authority. But then on the other side, abuse of authority also creates that distrust, doesn't it? I mean, we've just had a week of scandals in, in, in Washington, you know, the IRS abusing its authority, the, the um, uh, people abusing the authority by taking phone records that don't belong to them, other types of scandals that have come up. And, and, and so authority in our culture is certainly under attack. And, and, and ultimately, though, the rejection of authority... The rejection of authority isn't really a rejection of authority. It's actually a desire for us to be the authority. When you reject the authority that God's placed over you, you're not rejecting authority as a concept. You're just saying, no, I want to be the authority. And the reason I'm talking about authority this morning is because this passage of Scripture here is all about the authority of Jesus Christ. His divine authority. We spent the last couple of weeks looking at, in the Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ series, looking at Jesus' call to his disciples. We looked at that divine call. Um, then last week we looked at how Jesus spoke divine words. He employed divine omniscience. He exercised divine power. He exhibited divine holiness. He imparted divine mercy when he, when he, when he performed that miraculous catch of fish in Luke chapter 5. But today I want to focus on his divine authority that we see in this passage of Scripture here. Mark, in his gospel, makes much of the authority of Jesus. He's, he's talking a lot in his gospel about the authority of Jesus. And it's certainly the focus here. This is a spectacular story. It's a supernatural duel between Jesus and an evil spirit. But let us be clear, the primary uh, focus or the, the message of this passage is not spiritual warfare. It's not about demonic possession or how to defeat demons. It's a passage about the authority of Jesus Christ and Jesus' message. The casting out of the demon is simply a demonstration of Christ's absolute authority. So this isn't a passage about um, demonic possession and demonic warfare, even though that's mentioned here in this passage. Now, I do want to give you a quick word, though, on demon possession. Just Just a real quick parenthetical comment, because you can't go through this text without asking some questions about demon possession like it's like we see here in this passage. First of all, I want us to say that the demonic possession is real and it's not simply the product, as some people would say today in our modern culture, of, of a primitive, uneducated society that simply labeled every illness a, 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 a demonic possession. 
And so people would look back at the scriptures and they say, well, they didn't understand epilepsy and they didn't understand uh, mental disorders and all that. And so therefore all of that was just, um, they would give it this label of demonic possession. Well, I don't think we can accept that. We need to see that demonic possession is a very real thing in Scripture. As a matter of fact, just a, just a quick reading of the Gospels will, will make it very clear that the Gospel writers understood the difference between an illness and a demonic possession. They even understood the difference between epilepsy and demonic possession. I mean, Luke himself is a physician. He, he writes one of the Gospels. So that's the first thing I want us to see. There's, because you can err on the side of saying, well, demonic possession is just some sort of idea that's antiquated and and, and it was the product of an uneducated, primitive mindset. But the second error we can make is to say that demonic, demonic possession is everywhere and always present. It's frequent. And I think that's wrong as well because I think as we look at in the scriptures, there's only four exorcisms of Jesus that Jesus performs in the book of Mark. It's not like everywhere he goes he's casting out demons, although he does cast out demons. But it, it isn't as frequent as I think we, we try to make it out to be. It, it was and it is rare. Now, I think you can, you can judge that from a, a couple of different perspectives. For example, there's not much more in other ancient writings about demonic possessions outside of what we have here in the Scripture. And it seems that, that even if you look at the Old Testament, there's only one example of the Old Testament of anyone being possessed by a demon. Does anyone know what that is? King Saul, right? God sent an evil spirit upon King Saul. God sent the evil spirit upon King Saul, by the way. And that's the only example we have in the Old Testament. So it's not like demonic possession is happening a lot there. Other ancient writings don't have much about demonic possession. So it seems like during Jesus' presence on the earth, there was a, an influx of demonic activity and demonic possession, which shouldn't surprise us because the, the Jewish people, they understood they, that the Messiah was coming. They were looking out for the Messiah. There were lots of false messiahs that came during Jesus' time. So the demons could read the, the signs of the times as well. And, and, and it wouldn't be surprising that, that, that Satan is working his hardest to, to bring opposition to the, to the coming kingdom of God. But, but beyond that as well, God and his sovereignty and his providence certainly could allow more demonic possession to happen during the time and life of Christ simply to exhibit what we see in this text here. And that is namely that Jesus is powerful over even the demons. And so uh, just those quick comments about demonic possession. But like I said, primarily this is a story about Jesus' authority and we see divine authority on display here in today's text. So here's, here's your notes. I'm going to go ahead and give you all the, all the notes at once here, all four of your blanks. And we're just going to walk through this. This will be our structure for today. We see Jesus' divine authority on display in today's passage. Number one, divine authority found in his teaching. Number two, divine authority found in his person, who he is. Number three, divine authority found in his judgment. And uh, number four, divine authority found in his position. So first, the divine authority found in his teaching. So let's go back to the beginning of the text here, verse 21. It says, and, then, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Verse 22 says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. As I've already stated in recent sermons, the primary activity of Jesus' ministry was a ministry of teaching and preaching. He didn't primarily do exorcisms. He didn't primarily go around healing people. He didn't primarily display power over nature. He didn't primarily do any miracles. Primarily, his main focus was to teach and preach the Word of God. 
Now, I know I sound like I'm beating a dead horse here because I've said that like week after week after week, but it's because it's in the text after text after text that it's very clear that Jesus' main focus was teaching and preaching the Word of God. Jesus' ministry wasn't primarily about his, his, his life, I should say. It wasn't primarily about his, his actions, but about his words, about what he was teaching. His primary ministry was one of proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand, and therefore people needed to repent and believe the gospel. And it remains the primary task of his followers today. There are many things that the church can do that are good and are right, but primarily the people of God are to be heralds of the same message that Jesus heralded. And of course, when Jesus taught, people listened. Jesus taught like none before. Notice that it says the people were astonished at his teaching. This word astonished means they were amazed or they were astounded. They were dumbstruck by his teaching. The word is actually even stronger than that. The Greek carries the idea that there was fear involved. That his preaching actually brought fear to their hearts. Now notice that they were astonished at his teaching before they saw the supernatural act of him casting out the demon. The teaching of Jesus didn't need miracles and signs. And it still doesn't. The proclamation of the gospel today doesn't need signs and miracles to confirm it. The gospel itself is the power to save. Now think about the most powerful sermon you've ever heard. Okay? The most powerful sermon you've ever heard, probably somewhere outside of here, the most powerful sermon you've ever heard, now multiply it by infinity, and you've got the power of Christ speaking. And the audience was dumbstruck by his authority. As I mentioned last week in John 7, there's that passage where the guards are sent to arrest Jesus, and they even forget the task they've been sent to do, and then they come back empty-handed. They say, no one ever spoke like this man. Why? Well, Mark says it's because he taught them as one who had authority. Authority. Why were Jesus' words so authoritative? Well, one is because they were utterly true. They were utterly true words. There was no error in his speaking. No sin in his motivation. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.22 that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. No deceit. That means that he was totally sincere. There was no hypocrisy on his lips. I'm a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. We're hypocrites. There's hypocrisy in, in, in my speech many times. I'm a sinner. Okay? Therefore, my words are oftentimes undercut by my actions or by my mannerisms or by my tone. But Jesus' tone was always right because it was always sincere. It was always perfect. There was no error in his, his teaching. He, he lived in perfect conformity with what he taught. We, on the other hand, sometimes we, we can say the right things, but either we don't live them out or we say them in the wrong way. So this made Jesus different than all the other teachers, not only from his day, but from our day as well. He taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. What does this mean? What's Mark trying to do here by drawing a contrast between Jesus and the scribes? Well, the scribes were mostly Pharisees. They were teachers of the law. Most of the priests, on the other hand, were Sadducees. What is Mark trying to drive home here by making this contrast? Well, one, as we've already mentioned, Jesus is not a hypocrite like the scribes. But also, we need to see that in Jesus' day, most of the rabbis and the scribes and the teachers would spend most of their time referencing Talmudic tradition and other famous rabbis instead of spending their time on the text itself. They were in bondage to quotation marks, as I heard someone say. 
They were in bondage to quotation marks. They would open up the text, they would read it, then they would say, well, Rabbi Hillel says this about this text. Or Rabbi Gamaliel says this, and they would invariably therefore add traditions of men to the clear teaching of the text. Or they would even fully miss the teaching of the text uh, by supplementing it with their own interpretations. They would muddy the clear waters of God's word with the traditions of men. This was designed, really, to mask their hypocrisy. It's designed to mask people's hypocrisy today as well. It's great. If you can look like an expert in the text, maybe you won't have to actually live it. I fear for myself and many pastors who have skills or gifts and oratory or the ability to study or whatever else and put together a cogent sermon and get up here and act like we got it together. But in reality, in the, in the dark corners of our life, we can't live it. And that's exactly what the, well, the professors of Jesus' day did. The reason they added all their fluff to the text was so that they could mask their hypocrisy. Jesus points it out in Mark chapter 7, verse 6. This is Jesus speaking. He, says, he said to them, Well did the Isaiah, Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9, and he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. This was the common problem of Jesus' day. This is why he wasn't like the scribes and the Pharisees. His teaching was different. It was unique. It was new. There was no hypocrisy. There was no mask. It was clear. It was filled with genuine, not fabricated passion. It was filled with conviction. It depended not on the thoughts of those who went before him. He spoke his father's words perfectly. He taught the scriptures perfectly with the authority he possessed as the scripture's author. I read a story of a, a men's softball league. I don't know if it was a church league or what, but uh, I guess they had their own rules for whatever particular league this was. And there became, a, became a, a, a conflict during one of the games. It probably was a church league since there was a conflict. Um, there became, there, a conflict came up in, in, in one of the games, and, and the teams were arguing with the umpire. And the umpire said, listen, the rule clearly states that this is the way it should be, this, this uh, call should be made. And one of the coaches says, well, that's not how I interpret the rule. And the umpire says, well, I'm the one who actually wrote the rules for this league. So that's going to stand with, the, with my call. And that's the point here. Jesus is the one. The reason he has authority here as he preaches and teaches is that he wrote the rules. He wrote the book. Jesus spoke with authority. The authority resides in God's word. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't uh, explain the word. Jesus it says he taught them. It doesn't mean you, you stop and you, it doesn't mean you don't stop and explain the text clearly so people can understand it. But I think sometimes preachers can depend too much on commentaries. Too much on uh, and not enough on the clear teaching of God's word. 
Too often we fill our lives or fill our minds with what men say about God's word instead of God's word itself. And we try to mask our own hypocrisy by showing how much we've learned from John Piper or R.C. Sproul or Paul Washer or Tim Keller or, or, or any one of the greats from the past, Luther, Calvin, Spurgeon, Edwards, whoever, you name it, whatever your favorite rabbi is. Friends, if we spend more time reading these men's works and these men's blogs than we do the word of God, we are in danger of the pride and foolish sin of the Pharisees. Do you spend as much time in the words of Christ, the word of God, that you do reading these articles by these other men? I'm not saying this isn't helpful. But I'm saying the authority resides in the word of God. The authority of Christ Jesus here in this account that Mark gives us and in our day-to-day lives is found in his infallible word, but we also see the authority of Christ expressed in other ways in this text. So secondly here, we see the authority of Christ bound up in the very nature of who he is, his person, the divine authority found in his person. What do I mean by that? Well, let's go back to the text, verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. So the Saturday morning service is going along. Jesus is preaching. His preaching is astonishing the people. And then there's this massive interruption. I've been interrupted in preaching before, but never like this. There's this interruption. Someone listening to the sermon is stirred into an angry frenzy, and it's a demon-possessed man. So the power and authority of Jesus' word gets this demon all riled up. Friends, we need to see that, that Satan and his cohorts hate the word of God. Churches that preach and teach the word of God faithfully will be churches that face spiritual warfare more blatantly. This man was in the synagogue. He had sat Saturday after Saturday after Saturday with no problem. Then Jesus speaks up, begins to speak the word of God clearly, and now he has a problem. Churches that speak the word of God clearly will face more spiritual warfare. It's the word, it's the authoritative word of God that Satan hates, and he undermines it. It's how it began in the very beginning, didn't it? Genesis 3, 1. Did God actually say? Let me give you my interpretation of what God said. What do you think, Eve? What do you think on this? Did God actually say? That's what Satan's role is, to come and to undermine the word of God. That's what he tries to do. So this demon cries out defiantly, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Now this phrase, what, do you have, what have you to do with us, it's a Jewish idiom Basically meant, we have no business with you and you have no business with us. That's what he's saying. Which is to say that this demon is not submitting to Jesus at this point. He's expressing defiant opposition. Get out of here. You have no business with us, Jesus. Now, us probably refers to the demonic realm as a whole. I don't think that this necessarily means that there were multiple demons in this man. And then he calls Jesus by his name. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Now, it was common practice and belief in Jesus' day to think that if you, you could exercise authority over someone by invoking their name. So the demon is making a futile attempt to gain control over Jesus. He is defiant. But as defiant as this demon is, he also knows who it is he's dealing with. And so he says, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's what I want to focus on now. This is the person of Jesus. He is the Holy One of God. This is the divine authority of Jesus' person on display, who he is. The demon knows who Jesus is. That's what we always see in the Gospels, by the way. The demons are recognizing Jesus before the people do, before many of the disciples do. 
And it's interesting, the people are calling Jesus teacher, rabbi, master. But the demons, when they refer to Jesus, they always refer to his divine nature. It's interesting. Go look at all the exorcisms in Scripture. You'll see that. Holy one of God. Or they'll call him son of God. And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't let these demons speak. He says, be silent. Later we read in this chapter that he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. He would not let them to speak because they knew him. Why? Always wondered, that always confused me. Jesus, why are you shutting these demons up? I mean, at least they're saying who you are. The rest of the people aren't getting it, but the demons get it, so let them speak. Well, he doesn't, Jesus is not interested in the profession of faithless knowledge. You see, in James 2, 19, we read that demons believe God in the sense that they know who he is. They know what God has done, and they know the inevitability of their own fate, and they shudder at the thought. But they do not and cannot possess saving faith or belief. Jesus isn't interested in that type of an acknowledgement. He's not interested in demonic acknowledgement. Professing Jesus that way is nothing more than an intellectual agreement with the facts about Jesus. But mental acknowledgement alone about who he is and the facts about Jesus is insufficient. It lacks faith. Faith goes beyond that goes beyond just the mind and flows from a new heart that treasures Christ above all. And in treasuring Christ above all, it trusts Christ for all. I wonder how many demonic professions of faith we have in the church in America today. There are James 2.9 professions of faith. Doesn't, don't treasure Jesus. We'll assent to some facts about Jesus, but there's no treasuring of Christ. That is nothing more than what the demons could do. Jesus, by the very nature of who he is, has authority over the demons. I asked Olivia this week for help with an illustration. I was trying to find an illustration to, to demonstrate the, the authority that a person has simply because of who they are. And she had a great one. She said, you know, uh, the difference between a sibling going and telling another sibling what to do and a parent. And it's very true. If I sent Emma Kate to go tell Noah to clean his room, there, nothing's going to happen there. It isn't going to happen. Okay. Even if she says, well, maybe if she says, dad says to clean your room, maybe something will happen. Now, if I go and say, Noah, clean your room, all of a sudden the person has changed there, so the authority has changed. And so here, Jesus is the Holy One of God. He's on the scene. He is disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame, triumphing over them. Jesus, the Holy One of God, is the only man that the demons are afraid of, for he is the only man who is also God. Perhaps you remember this account from our journey through Acts a few years ago. Acts 15, verse 13. says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you in the name, by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Okay, it's kind of a humorous story. You guys go in and think they're going to they're somehow invoke Jesus like he's some sort of power to bring out, to deal with the demons, and the demon whoops them, rips off their clothes, and they go running off naked. Demons fear no man. Except one, the one, the Holy One, the Holy One of God. They fear the God-man, for Jesus is the only one who has authority over them. They fear Jesus because of who he is and what he was accomplishing as he lived and what he was going to accomplish on the cross. 
He's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, according to Ephesians 1, 21. There's another indication in the text here of the simple authority of Jesus' person, of who he is. Look again at his response to the demon. And certainly those in the room here would have noticed this. It says in verse 25, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Whenever there was an attempt to cast out demons in Jesus' day, okay, it was done, but I'm talking about by other people other than Jesus, it was done in the name of a deity or done with some sort of incantation. There'd be some sort of incantation. Same thing goes on today when people supposedly are trying to cast out demons. They, they, they have some sort of formula or some sort of incantation or even in, even in uh, pagan religions they'll, they'll appeal to some sort of deity. Same thing in Jesus' day. But Jesus doesn't start mumbling some incantation. He doesn't call on a higher power. He is the highest power and he simply speaks authoritatively for the de- demon to be silent and to come out and the raw authority of Jesus is on display because of who he is. He is the son of the living God and the demon leaves. Demons shudder at the knowledge of who he is. Why? Because they know what we need to know. Namely, number three here, that Jesus has divine authority bound up in his judgment. There's divine authority found in his judgment. Look again at what the demon says. Have you come to destroy us? The demons shudder because they know that Jesus is the righteous judge of the universe. The demons see the kingdom of God breaking in. They see the king on the scene. And all this means that the end times have been inaugurated. And they know what's coming next after, after the, 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 the kingdom of God is breaking in. They know what the next thing is. It's called judgment. And they shudder. This week's memory verse, by the way, I put the wrong memory verse up there. I don't know if anybody noticed it or not. If you didn't notice, that means you haven't been doing your memory verse. All right. I, I put 10... 43 this morning, but it should have been 1042. This is the, this is the, um, I mean, it should have been 1043. I put 1042 up there. This was the memory verse for the week. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. I'm trying to do memory verses that are evangelistic memory verses. So that was the memory verse. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's verse 43 of chapter 10 of Acts. But verse 42 Let me read that one. That's the one we actually read during the service. It says, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Jesus is the judge of the world. Now, in his first advent, Jesus himself says in John chapter 1 or John chapter 12, I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. But that does not mean that Jesus isn't the judge. He is, and upon his return it will be for judgment, and the demons know it. Later in Jesus' ministry, we'll read of him casting out a legion of demons in Matthew chapter 8. And they'll say, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They understand that there is a time. There is a time set aside for judgment. It's the return of Christ, the time, the day of judgment. It's coming. I said I don't want our people having demonic faith, but you know what? We need to have a, more of a demonic understanding of the judgment because I don't think we shudder at the coming judgment like the demons do. We don't, we, don't under, we don't believe, I don't think we have the same earnest belief that the demons have as they're sitting here knowing who Jesus is, knowing that, wait a second, I'm going to be judged. 
I'm going to be cast away forever. They know the judgment is coming. They know the end times are here, and the next step is judgment. And we live in our day-to-day going around doing whatever we do, um, spending our life on vain pleasures without any concept of the judgment that's coming, without even thinking about it. It's the divine authority of Christ and his judgment. Acts 17, 31, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. John 5, 22, and then also in verse 27 of John chapter 5. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. For we all must appear, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that everyone may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The demons knew this. They understood the authority of Jesus' judgment, and they hated it. They hated him. They despised him, but they also feared him. I'm not sure everyone else in the synagogue does, though. If, if they did, if they understood who Jesus was, they appropriately understood his authority, they, they would be like Peter was in last week's story. They'd be falling on their knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. That's a man who understands judgment. A man who falls on his knees and says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, is a man who understands judgment. But most people don't react this way because we fail to see Jesus' authority to judge. You talk to people today, even in the church, Jesus doesn't judge people. That's what people will say. Jesus doesn't judge people. Not at his first coming. But if you don't believe Jesus judges people, you're going to be shocked out of your socks at his second coming. Hear and fear the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 28. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If there be anyone here that has not seen and understood his or her own sinfulness before a holy God... Please hear again the words from Acts chapter 10. He, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Believe in him, friends, and receive forgiveness of sins. The only way to stand on the day of judgment is to stand forgiven by the blood of Christ. Forgiveness received by God's grace through faith. Forgiveness purchased by Jesus on the cross. You see, roughly two or two and a half years after the events of today's text, the demons would spend a few days celebrating, thinking that they had won the cosmic battle for supremacy of the universe, having seen the Holy One of God killed on a Roman cross. But on that next Sunday morning, their joy would turn to mourning as Jesus rose triumphantly, victoriously, champion of the ages, and the demonic powers and principalities were brought to nothing. He was and always will be supreme. He would take their best shot but rise victoriously, rendering his foes toothless and powerless. For he is the son of the living God. He is, he was, and he will always be supreme. Which brings me to my last point. Number four, divine authority found in his position. Meaning that he is high above all. He is supreme. He demonstrates his, the authority of his position, his supremacy, in the way he speaks to this unclean spirit. Like I said already, he's not invoking anyone higher. Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. This wasn't much of a battle, was it? 
It wasn't much of a confrontation. It wasn't like Jesus had to get in an arm wrestling match with this guy. He simply spoke demons out. You see, the world believes in dualism, that there's this sort of balance between good and evil. Right? The dark side of the force and the light side of the force. Yin, yang, whatever. No, no, no. Scripturally, Jesus is king and he rules and there's not much of a battle. He simply speaks demons out. So Jesus is on the scene. He's announcing the kingdom of God. He begins his, his, his preaching and his ministry and, and, the, and the warfare begins. But, but if this is like the opening battle of a larger war, well, then it wasn't much of a contest. Jesus demonstrates his authority of his position by the fact that he simply speaks a word and the demon's resistance crumbles and he leaves. This is the first of of several skirmishes Jesus will have with the demonic world. But like always, Jesus crushes his opponents without much effort. After all, Jesus has already defeated their boss earlier in the wilderness. Remember that? The warfare in the wilderness. Satan gave it his best shot and Jesus, with the power of God's word, shot him down. The victory was never in question. I remember 19, I think it was 1991 or 1992, the first Gulf War. It was on the media and they were building up how great Saddam Hussein's army was. Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait. I can't remember what his army was called, the Royal Guard or something like that. And they, they were making this big deal of how, how, how technologically advanced they were and how strong they were. And so it comes time for the American soldiers to, to come in and, and push Iraq out of Kuwait and liberate Kuwait. And so I, I remember it. They, they show it on TV. All these tanks begin to roll in. Maybe you remember just a ton, hundreds of tanks rolling across the desert, rolling into Kuwait. The battle lasted like 48 hours, and it was over. There wasn't much resistance. So Satan's kind of like Saddam's army. He may make a big deal of himself, but in the end, Jesus just with a word pushes him out. 1 John 3, 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Part of his divine mission was to crush Satan underfoot. This is Jesus, the seed of the woman, standing strong with his heel, his foot on the head of the ancient serpent, increasingly bruising him underfoot until finally and fully it is crushed at Calvary. And we're waiting that final moment when he stops wiggling. But mind you, Satan and his demons are a defeated bunch. There is no question about that. They still make a lot of noise, but they're a defeated bunch. They're defeated. They're like the second, the second Gulf War, okay? They may claim a lot, but they're defeated. You remember Baghdad Bob? He was the spokesman for Saddam Hussein. And he would stand there and say, we are pushing back the Americans while there's bombs blowing up like behind his head. Okay, you can hear the gunfire. And he says, oh, they're, they're hundreds of miles away and bullets are whizz, whizz, whizzing by his head. So Satan can deny it all he wants and try to put fear into God's people. But we stand victorious by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Satan may talk a lot of smack, but he's talking from underneath the strong foot of Jesus. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He tells this defeated foe to be silent, literally means be muzzled, and come out of him. And the authority of Jesus is on display as the demon obeys, albeit reluctantly. He tries to cry out. He tries not to speak. He tries to say something. I think the reason he's crying out here is he's trying to say something. He's trying to defy Jesus' command. But all he can do is let out loud shrieks. Jesus has muzzled him. 
He's put a muzzle on this guy so he can't talk anymore. Because when Jesus makes a command, he commands authoritatively, it is obeyed. I love the supremacy of Christ on display here. What authority, unlike our authority, right? You know, we, we, we think we have authority and we tell little Johnny, little Johnny, don't touch that. Little Johnny, don't, one, two, if I get to three, you're getting a spanking, two and a half, 2.98, Johnny. There's no one, demon, two, demon, it's out. And it's out. It's done. There's not much of a battle here. What a church service that was that Saturday, huh? And they were all amazed, according to verse 27. So they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. A new teaching with authority. Let this little conclusion of the story remind us that teaching is the focus. Teaching is the focus. The miracles of Jesus always serve to confirm the authority of the word. Let me say that again. The miracles of Jesus always serve to confirm the authority of the word. The story of the paralytic whose friends dug a hole through the roof to get, them, get him to Jesus. We'll get to that eventually. You remember Jesus says that he forgives the man's sins. That's authority. He forgives sins. Boom, they're forgiven. A new authoritative, powerful teaching on the scene. Jesus can forgive sin. Now the Pharisees were upset and they rightly concluded that only God can forgive sins. So we read that Jesus says to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. The miracles always serve to confirm the authority of the teaching that Jesus forgives sins. Forgiveness of sin is only found in the Son of God. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. Same thing we see in Acts. When we were going through the book of Acts, remember I talked about word and wonder? There was always a, the, the, there was never just a wonder, a, a miracle by itself. There was always a teaching, a word, and then a wonder. A word, and then a wonder. The wonders just served to confirm the word. Remember in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are in Cyprus. They were on their first missionary journey. There was a Jewish uh, magician there named Bar-Jesus. He had been confusing the people. But then they're preaching and teaching to the proconsul, and, and, and this Bar-Jesus didn't want them preaching and teaching and, and tries to stand in their way. And, and uh, Paul says, okay, you're not going to be able to see for a while. Darkness is going to come over you. And boom, the guy can't see. It's pretty amazing. Pretty spectacular. And it says in verse 12 of Acts chapter 13, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It wasn't that he was astonished at the miracle. That astonished him too. But it was the teaching. Whoa, this is a teaching with authority. This word has authority. So we don't have to put on a show to make people believe the word. We simply preach it. We preach the word of God. The wonders were always designed to show the authority of the word. And once the apostolic word was confirmed and passed on, there's no longer a need for the wonders. Although God can still do wonders if he so wishes, they're not needed anymore. Whatever he does, he does to advance for his fame and his name. We read in verse 28. 
And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. So the question for us this morning as I conclude is simply this. Have you submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ? We have authoritative word of Jesus, an authoritative teaching, which declares to us his person, the authority of who he is, the Holy One of God, the Son of God, the perfect sacrificial Lamb of God, come to forgive sinners who turn to him. He has authority to send all who do not turn to him to hell. And he will. He's coming back to judge the living and the dead. Oh, friend, don't leave here this morning without submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ and seeing him as supreme above all things. I pray that you'll believe in him, turn from your sin, confess him as Lord, and you'll see that he will become the treasure of your life, the supreme joy of your life, your reason for living. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and conclude with a word of prayer this morning. As we get ready to respond in a time of singing and bringing of our tithes and our offerings, and I pray that this morning we would, um, we would just ask Jesus to, to simply use his spirit to penetrate our heart and demonstrate in our lives any area that we are in, out of step with his authority. What area of our life do we think we can rule over? So this time of response is for all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now and we ask that you would cause our eyes to see the authority of Jesus in every, every little pocket of life. That you would cause our hearts to submit to that authority. Lord, forgive us of, of so often trying to sit on the throne of our own lives saying that we believe in Jesus while all the while we go about doing whatever it is we want to do, however we want to do it. Father, I pray that we would submit to the authority of Jesus over our lives today. I pray that there be anyone here who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as the King of their lives, that they would see what the demons saw, that is that he is the Holy One of God, but they would believe, which is what the demons couldn't do, that only by faith in the Holy One of God they'll be saved. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would have the freedom to do whatever you want with us in this remaining time we have. For all this in Jesus' name, amen.